The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I was already late when the man on the street stopped me, caught my attention, and launched into a spiel. I was coming from class at the Divinity School, and I was rushing to my job at the church, and I was slightly irritated that this obviously homeless guy was now going to make me even more late. But he caught my attention, he caught my eye, and I couldn't ignore him like I wanted to. So I stood there and let him explain his situation. It really only took him a few seconds as he told me his story. But during that brief time, a whole bunch of things started to run through my mind. Being late, my responsibilities at church, my dislike of being scammed, the distasteful appearance of this guy, the overwhelming homelessness issue that we faced in the urban areas surrounding our church and in the communities around it. And in the midst of all that, my responsibility to it as a Christian. All these things running through my mind all at once in just a few seconds. It's pretty confusing and perplexing, especially when you throw in that last part about what is my responsibility as a Christian. I don't know. What am I supposed to do in that kind of a situation? What do you do? Maybe you encountered that very situation. I'm, I'm sure you have. Somebody stopped you in the street and asked you for something. But related situations may be more prevalent in your life. Perhaps this kind of issue arises for you when you see the television or the magazine ad about starvation relief in some faraway land. Or maybe it comes up when you have the opportunity to serve in the local homeless shelter or crisis pregnancy center. Or perhaps it's the idea of getting involved with the diseased or the elderly in the community that a lot of people really don't care about that much. Or maybe it's just your neighbor who is unemployed or underemployed and kind of having a hard time making ends meet. All those situations could be relevant in your life. All of them, I'm sure, have come across your path at some point. The needs of this world, the brokenness in human beings' lives due to a whole host of reasons, all kinds of things lead to these situations. But this kind of suffering, this hurting, the downcast, the weak, the lowly, it's prevalent. It's everywhere, all around us in this world. What is our responsibility to it? What are we to do? I do not know. And so I'm not going to attempt to tell you this morning, you should do this or this or this. I don't know. But our text this morning, Psalm 41, touches on some of these sorts of questions. And while, of course, it's not going to give us any concrete answers to any of these things, it just doesn't. The Bible is not going to speak like that. It is, however, going to lay out a general path and urge us to walk down that path, entice us even, to walk further down that path. This morning we come to the end of our series in the Psalms. We've been here for about two months now. We've been looking at selected Psalms from book one of the book of the Psalms, Psalms numbers one to 41. And we began in number one, numbers one and two, which together form kind of the foundation of the whole book. 
You recall we talked about this. There, the issue of the blessed life is surfaced. This kind of life that is glad and happy in heart, that rests in peace and joy. The blessed life. It's brought up there, it's explained a little bit, and then throughout the whole rest of the psalm book, this idea keeps coming up. Not in every psalm, not in the same way, but it keeps coming up, and it's going to come up in Psalm 41 this morning. Indirectly, this text is going to touch on things we talked about in Psalm 1. It's going to address the blessed life, and it's going to talk about heeding, hearing and then heeding God's commands to us. It's going to tie the, the blessed life. Following His commands. Living out His heart. This pattern of life leads to great blessing here in Psalm 41. So we're going this morning. After I read the text, I'm going to pass back through it pretty quickly, verse by verse, just to kind of highlight a couple things. And I'm going to bring out three main aspects of this blessed life, three angles of looking at it. So let me read the text first. I'm going to read Psalm 41. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Verse 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said... Oh, Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words. Well, his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Time and energy to. The picture here implies more than just a casual thought. And actually, it's more than just deep thought only. It's thought that is so deep and so profound that it leads me to a change. Something different happens in me. I consider, I contemplate the poor. Not just those who who don't have money, but you might have a foot on your Bible that says, or the weak. Because the word is actually broader than just lacking dollars. It's weak, helpless, downcast, poor. Blessed is the one who considers, who gives thought to, and contemplates those in need in some way. It's the introduction, the hook, 
And I'm hooked because I want the blessedness, and I see that connection, and then it goes on to elaborate what the blessedness would look like of the person who, who considers the poor. Now, notice that from middle of verse 1 all the way down through verse 3, he's saying essentially the same thing in a couple of different ways, coming at it from different angles. What does this life of blessing look like? Well, it's the Lord who delivers him, who saves him, who keeps him alive, who heals his diseases. He's called blessed in the land because his enemies don't triumph over him. The blessing that follows from having concern for those in need. The connection there is pretty clear. We need to take, make a word of caution here, though, because we can't push this too far. We can't read this in an absolute sense, because obviously the psalmist understands that God does not heal all diseases. All of us eventually are going to physically die. Sometimes God intends for, actually intends for, the wicked to triumph. Think of the cross. The psalmist is, is aware of some of these sorts of things. He's not trying to lay out a perpetual life plan. If you care for the poor, you will never die and will live for thousands of years here on the earth. He's not saying that. We can't push this too far. Rather, we need to consider the principle here. Broadly speaking, in the day of trouble, God will be your ally. God will stand at your side and uphold you somehow. In your day of trouble, count on that. That's the point of introduction here in verses 1 to 3. And then what happens is David gives his personal example. Pulls in case 1, myself. As for me, look what happened to me. Here's what was going on in my life. And then he describes that in verses 4 to 9. He has a multiplied, sorrowful situation. He realizes, my sin led me to this. God's chastising him for it. He's really clear about that. He understands that. God's disciplining those he loves, David. And it's serious. The onlookers think he's going to die. He's so sick. But in the midst of that day of trouble, it's multiplied by the betrayal of all of those around him. You see that going on. They swarm around him and they plot and they scheme. They stab him in the back at every turn. They kick him while he's down. Do they have concern for the weak and the needy and the poor, David, at this time? No. No, they're out to get him. Even one so close to him that the text actually literally calls him a man of peace. One so close to David as to share morsels of bread from the same loaf as the king. Even that one turns on him, lifts up his heel, and strikes him a treacherous blow. An image of, of a horse or a mule that might kick someone unexpectedly. Even that close of a friend, David is betrayed by everyone all around. And so he cries out in verse 4 and then again in verse 10, Lord, be gracious to me. Help me and deliver me. Sustain me and restore my health, please. Keep me from the will of my enemies. It's his hope. It's his prayer. He calls out to him and he pleads with him for grace twice. Pleads for verses 1 to 3 type deliverance from God. And he rests confident in that. By this I know you delight in me. You're not going to let my enemies triumph over me. You're going to raise me up. And those who have struck at the king, the anointed, they will be repaid with justice. That's going to happen, God. I'm sure of it. You delight in me. It's 11. And in 12, because of my integrity. 
in my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. In the context of this psalm, his integrity, his soundness in heart, his wholeness, his completeness in heart is connected back to this having concern for the poor. You look at me and you see me sound and whole in relation to your expectations of me. And so you deliver me and uphold me in the midst of trouble. And verse 13, a resounding blessing. Fitting conclusion to this psalm, but really it's bigger than just this psalm. Some of your texts may set it off a little bit because it's actually the conclusion to the whole first book. If you were to look at books two, three, four, you'd see very similar endings. All that we've seen from Psalm 1 all the way here through Psalm 41, God, you are good. Blessed be the God of Israel. God, who is so good to me and so caring for me and so blesses me in life, you are a good God. Blessed be your name forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the text closes. What do we take from that? Some instruction in the beginning, a real life example of it. What are we to take? I'm going to draw out three different aspects of the blessed life here. And they're really pretty closely related. They're kind of like looking at similar things from different angles. One of these aspects is going to relate to God's expectation of us. One of them, God's enticement of us. And the third one kind of connects the two. So I'll give you sentences to summarize them when I get there. But that's kind of the nature of these three different elements that we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to start with the one that's about expectation. In part, here, here it is, here's the first point. In part, the blessed life is connected to those who have concern for the poor. In part, the blessed life is connected to those who have concern for the poor. I say in part because we've seen, you could look through the rest of the scripture and you could find that the blessed life is also connected to a bunch of other things too. But in this text, what he's focusing in, is this, in on is this concern for the poor. So in part, the blessed life here is connected in Psalm 41 to concern for the poor. That's his expectation of us. That we have concern for those in need all around us. Not just those who don't have money, but those who are hurting, who are weak in some way. The people that we pass by, that we live next to, that we work with. His expectation is we care for them. And that connection is pretty explicit in verse 1. Who's blessed? Who is the blessed person? One who has concern for the poor. It's pretty clear right there. But when I first read that, it kind of caught me as a bit odd because it doesn't quite seem parallel to other statements that we've seen. If you recall, we've seen this kind of phraseology before. I can understand, blessed is the one who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night. I get that, Psalm 1. I can understand, blessed is the one who seeks refuge in the Lord, Psalm 2. I get that. I can even understand last week, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. That makes sense too. Those seem to be explicitly spiritual things. Holding to God's word, God's Messiah being forgiven of your sin, that's really clearly spiritual stuff. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. It doesn't quite seem to match, but it does. 
indirectly. It matches. The blessing is still coming from God. It's still spiritual in nature, but it's coming through something else. Through living in a way and and caring in a way that matches God's heart. He sees something here in this concerned one, in this one who's concerned for the poor. He sees something there that he's pleased with and he's inclined to bless. This has been his heart. You can look back to the text of the Old, Old Testament Scriptures and find it. Consider, for instance, the law. First five books of the Bible. In the center of them is the book of Leviticus. Not a book that we spend a lot of time in. It's full of, chock full of commandments and statements about expectation and law and instruction and guidance. And in there, from place to place, you can find things about how God cares for and is concerned for those in need. Take chapter 19, for instance. In part of that chapter, God explains how he's going to feed the poor in the nation of Israel. Israelite farmers were forbidden from fully harvesting their fields. They couldn't harvest any of the edges And as they walked through the field, gathering in all this stuff by hand and putting it in carts, I assume, anything they dropped, they had to leave there. Couldn't pick it up. So you've got a field with all the crops still standing around the edges and stuff dropped here and there throughout as they cut it down and fail to catch it. Or it slips out of their hand as they're carrying a big load. All that is left there. Left there for the poor of the land. Both Israelite and foreigners who happen to be wandering through so that they could come and harvest and eat. Now what that meant was obviously each individual farmer's bottom line was not as big as it could be, right? You left some crop out there. And it also meant that all throughout the whole nation, all the poor could eat. God's expectation. And so he puts it in a command. He's, he's making concrete his concern for the poor. God cares for those in need and he expects commands in Leviticus 19 his people to do likewise. So to not do likewise is sin. And the prophet Isaiah picks up on that. You can write this down, chapter 58 of Isaiah, you can read it later. But Isaiah is writing just before Jerusalem is finally destroyed for its wickedness and carried off into exile by the Babylonians. And he's writing to this people that are in rebellion and they're saying to God and to the prophet, we're doing all the religious stuff we're supposed to do. We pray, we fast, we humble ourselves. Why does God not hear? And God through Isaiah says, tell them, make this clear, cry aloud, declare to my people their transgressions. They seek me daily, all right. They fast and they pray. They think they humble themselves. They wonder why I don't hear. Tell them. You fast, all right. You go without food, but is not this the fast that I choose? That you give your food to the hungry? That you bring the homeless poor into your house? And that you clothe the naked and do not avoid him? I want you to pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted then and only then then shall your light rise in the darkness and the Lord will guide you and make your bones strong he will satisfy your desires in a sun-scorched land you will be like a well-watered garden like a spring of waters whose waters never fail do you follow that? the God of Isaiah He's chastising his people for not listening to the God of Leviticus. Same God 
He gave those commands in Leviticus because they are his heart. We do not live in a world where there are abstract rules and principles that God then comes under and has to adhere to and then kind of passes on to us. Everything that God commands or instructs us in is about him. It is his nature revealed to us. It's what he values. It's what he cares about. It's what his heart beats for. And he told his people that in the instructions. And they didn't listen to him. So he's chastising them. He's echoing his commands there. And he says, if you want my blessing, heed my instruction and care for the poor. Blessed is the one who meditates on this instruction day and night. Who hears it, internalizes it, and acts on it. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water who bears its fruit in season. Words of Psalm 1. Or to use the words of Isaiah, he will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring of waters whose waters never fail. Pretty similar. A desert all around and here green with abundant water, fruitful. Get that picture? The life of blessing is available to those who heed God's instruction Follow God's heart. Live with integrity towards Him. And here, consider the poor. But here's my problem. And I encounter it every time someone stops me on the street to ask me for money. My problem is that I realize that I don't care nearly as much for the poor as God does. And have a hunch that I don't care nearly as much for those in need as God wants me to care. Pretty sure that's the case. Now, I am not saying that the right thing to do is to hand that person money. I've talked to, frankly, I've talked to a lot of Christians who work in in that kind of ministry that interacts with those situations, and, and many of them have told me that's the absolute wrong thing to do. It just furthers the problem. I'm not speaking for or against giving that person money. I'm not speaking about that specific at all. What I'm talking about is regardless of what I actually do, I'm talking about what I know rises up inside of me at that moment. I want to cross the street because I want to get away from it and avoid it, not think about it. I'm late, I'm going to work. The great irony of leaving a seminary and going to church strikes me in this situation. I, probably you, but I'll talk about me, I am far too much like the people of Isaiah 58. And we're not identical. We're different. We live under a new covenant. There's a change that has happened in us that we're going to talk about in a bit that has not happened in them. So we are different, and I'm not here, though my tone may seem to imply that I'm not here to chastise you or myself. I, frankly, I know that there are plenty of people here who care about those in need much more than I do, and you could be lecturing me on this. I'm not here to chastise you or to, to administer some sort of a, of a public rebuke. No, I'm not doing that. What I am here, though, to, is to do is to highlight this, to cause us to, to think about this, 
in, in some ways, I'm, I'm very different from Isaiah 58 people. But in some ways, I'm, I'm too similar. And I think you probably are too. We, like they, are prone to want to separate a couple of things. To put our religious behaviors over here and the living out of the heart of God over here. I say and I think to God, God, I pray, I study my Bible, I fast, I interact with people, I share my faith, we fellowship together. Can we just not talk about that thing? Whatever that thing is, in this case, it's the concern for the poor. I'm doing the religious things I'm supposed to do, right? God, bless me. I want to separate the blessing of God from issue X, in this case, concern for the poor. That's what Isaiah 58 people are doing. And I'm too much like that. Are you? God expects otherwise. Consider the poor. Contemplate. Spend time, which is more expensive than money. Spend time thinking about and interacting with the lowly and with the issues of lowliness. This stuff is complicated, which is why I wouldn't even begin to tell you what exactly you should do. Politics gets involved in all these things. We get into discussions about what causes this and what the best way to actually address root problems. I don't know what any of those answers are. The point I'm trying to make is that God wants you to engage it in some way, whatever way it is appropriate for you. And as God's heart becomes more of your heart, He'll call you towards need. I am sure of it. He will call you towards need in whatever particular way you can meet it. Time, money, caring. We just heard it at Lil Beckstrom just passed away. We heard at her memorial service how she went down every, I think it was every Friday for lunch, ordered some pizzas and sat with women at the rescue haven. For some time, building relationships with women who were recovering from a whole bunch of different stuff. She did that. She had a ministry there. She cared for people. Maybe that's something you can do. I don't know. It's, it's different for all of us. The point is, God has an expectation of us that we share His heart concern for the people all around us who are in various types of need and that we move towards meeting that in some way. That's His expectation of us. It will cost you something It will. That's what he requires. And in some way, in part, the life of blessing is tied to concern for the poor. If we stop there, though, all we have is some sort of a, a call to obedience, a call to follow after him and, and do what we are supposed to do and expected to do as his people. I need to say that, but here's where I want to look at it. the same thing from a slightly different angle. The first one was about expectation. The second point here is about enticement. Here's the second point. The blessings of God are marvelous enticements to us to care for those in need. The blessings of God are marvelous enticements to care for those in need. 
similar thing from a different angle. Think about this. He has laid something out here for us in the middle of one and following. He's laid out blessing. That should grab your attention. He calls out to us with enticements. He's told us, this is the way to go. And then from this angle, he says, come over here and get this. Do you see the blessings over here? Come get them. Drawing you on. Be drawn. Blessed is the person. Blessed here in the land. When you face the day of your own trouble, even if it's partially self-induced, Maybe even when when your sin comes home to bear consequences and you're under the chastisement of God. Even in times like that, but beyond that, when you suffer from natural diseases that God has not connected to your sin. When you suffer from loss of job or financial hardship yourself. When you suffer the kind of betrayal that David's experiencing here. Maybe you get sick and then your friends don't come around anymore. Or your friends begin to to talk about you or you find yourself removed from the social setting or they give your job away to somebody else while you're on leave. In all those kinds of situations, whatever the day of trouble is for you, you have great hope of blessing here. He will protect you, the Lord Himself. He'll stand by your side and deliver you in some way, uplift you and hold you and protect you. But not perfectly, not perfectly, in exactly the way you might desire. Again, we can't push this too hard. He isn't promising perpetual life on earth. But when David goes to the Lord in prayer, he asks Him for grace. He doesn't think he has any obligation to Him. He's he's not uh, thinking that he's got one over on God or something. He's asking Him for grace, but he's asking expectantly. God's going to meet him. He's going to do something. God, you said... You would respond to those who care for those in need. So deliver me. Uphold me, I pray. So without trying to turn this into some cosmic vending machine where we we put in our concern for the poor and we get out long life and deliverance, without making it quite so mechanical, leaving room for the wisdom of God and the loving grace of God to meet our needs in whatever way He knows best, that will enable us to become what we are most supposed to be, leaving room for that. Nevertheless, there's a principle here that we can stand on, that we're meant to see and embrace and revel in. God takes sides. He does. God takes sides. And what he's saying here is that he takes the side of the one who with integrity in heart follows after him in having concern for the poor. There are more things in Scripture we can look at, but here what he's talking about in this particular passage is that he takes the side of the one who has concern for the poor. He delights in him, delivers him, upholds him in the day of trouble, raises him back up, upholds him because of his integrity. Something in him that is whole, that matches who God is and what God expects. You have upheld me in the day of trouble and not abandoned me, he says in verse 12. 
Now be careful because we could read this wrong and you could think that God is responding to something David has earned. David is not saying, I do this, therefore God, you must do. He prays for grace. He's asking for an undeserved gift. He knows God's inclined, God's on his side, but he's not praying in the sense of demand or earn. He says, I have a heart of integrity. I stand on your side. He doesn't say where the heart of integrity came from. We'll talk about that in a moment. Still coming to that part. He's talking about end results. God, this is where I stand. I know that you are on my side, and so I pray to you, in whatever way is best, deliver me and uphold me. Brothers and sisters, we should be strongly enticed by this offer of God to stand at our side and sift through all attacks that come against us. To sift them, to weigh them, to sustain and deliver us when we most need it in the way that we most need. That should draw you. It's available to you if you follow God's heart in this concern for the poor. That should be attractive. But there is greater blessing here still, the end of verse 12. You upheld me. You placed me in your presence forever. Standing in the presence of the Lord forever. Face-to-face fellowship with the God for whom we were made. Can you see Him? He's not a doctrine. He's not an idea. He's a being that if He appeared here would blow you away. God, immortal, invisible. God, only wise. God, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, but not quite. Welcomed into His very presence, He says. Now we see Him. We're in His presence now. We see Him dimly as through a glass, but there will be a time when we'll break through that and we will see Him face to face. He will no longer be inaccessible and hid from our eyes. But we will behold Him. To stand in His presence forever. And in some way, it's connected right here to having this kind of integrity of heart that cares for those in need. That should entice you. It should draw you. We have to share that kind of heart to be that person of integrity before Him. How does it happen? We're not there yet. That's the goal that should draw you. From the one side, we have the expectation that should push you. God expects us to care for the poor. From the other side, we have the enticement that should draw you. Look at all the blessings here on this life to stand by your side and deliver you. And then here in this life and on into eternity standing in His presence forever. Match yourself to God. Pursue His heart. There is great blessing in it. Be drawn and enticed. Now come to the third part. And If I just stop there, I just stop there. We have two things. We have the expectation of God and the blessing of God that will result if we met that expectation. But this psalm doesn't connect the two. And actually, much of the Old Testament does not connect the two. 
Much of the Old Testament is working to present to us the expectation of God and the resulting blessing that would come if we met that expectation, and that just leaves it there for us. And it leaves it there for us to discover a problem. I don't do that. I can't do that. Whatever the expectation is. I don't care for people as much as you do. I, I notice again and again and again that my heart is not turned towards people in need, but it's turned towards me. God, I'm seeing that again and again and again. The Old Testament's trying to leave you in this spot. What do I do about that? I see the blessing. It's, it's attractive to me in some way, but I can't get there. Help me. What do I do about that? This psalm does not answer that question. Not directly. It hints at it, though. Kind of points us in a direction. Without the broader context of the Bible, we're sort of left like a horse led to water that's unable to drink. See what's here, but in some way we're muzzled. We lack ability on a couple different levels. We lack the ability at all to come to God, or we lack the ability to come to God like we should, day after day. What are we going to do about that? We have fallen natures. We have a problem here. In our natures, in ourselves, we are decisively turned away from other people and away from God, in fact, most critically. We see his expectations in ourselves. We reject them. We see his enticements in ourselves. We're not drawn to them like he gives them. We might want them from some other way. We're not drawn in his ways. What do we do about that? He can't be our ally in ourselves. We are enemies of his, the Bible says. Set off from him, kept away in rebellion against him. He doesn't stand at our side to meet our needs. And I notice that in myself, in my fallen nature, I notice that every time I reject those in need around me. He's got to overcome that somehow. I need help from him to overcome that somehow first so that I can come to be his, his friend and his ally and he can be my companion. And then once that's happened, day by day by day I find that I'm still not what I'm supposed to be. Can he help me overcome that and become more like him? To become more of this person who meets the needs of those around me and receives his daily blessings. See, I have two needs here. One, to get into the relationship in the first place, and then one, to grow into that, into what I'm supposed to become and what God is pleased with. This text does not directly tell me how to do that. It doesn't directly tell you how to do either of those things, but it hints at it, like I said. The only way any of this can come about is because there is a broader context we read through Psalm 41 and we read the first person pronouns and initially, obviously, they all refer to David. I do this. I experience that. You do this for me. All that's talking about him. Someone has surpassed him in integrity. One who surpassed him came and walked the earth. He surpassed him in how much he cared for the poor surpassed him in his compassion, in his desire to meet needs. He did so perfectly, in fact, in exactly the right ways, exactly as God expected and required. 
fully matched up to God's intentions and God's attitudes and God's endeavors. In himself, by himself, he had full integrity with God. Fully, completely. And this same one, though, was also hard-pressed in life. Betrayed all around. Had a thing leading to death poured out on him by God. But differently, surpassing David, it wasn't because of his own sin, but it was because of the sin of someone else. Someone's else. This one too knew betrayal. He suffered and faced death, and as he did so, he heard all the taunts and the whispers and the shouts all around him as people hoped he would die and perish from the scene. Led there even by one so close to him that he dipped bread in the cup and ate from his hand. Close enough to kiss him, this one struck him a treacherous blow. The great man of integrity, the anointed son of David, God in the flesh was abandoned to the cross and then to the grave, but raised up because God delighted in him, upheld because of his own integrity, delivered from the plots of his enemies, raised up and is now seated in the very presence of God at the right hand of the throne of glory. You know who I'm talking about, Jesus. We see him here in this psalm. And seeing him here in this psalm gives us assurance that what he did on the cross works. It's true. It's God's plan. It's God's agenda. And God foretold it. Pointed ahead in hints and clues. You can't read Psalm 41 and see the cross all laid out here. Of course not. But you see a hint of it, most, most especially in verse 9. But all around we see Jesus in this. Accused, betrayed, lifted up and delivered. Delighted in and exalted. It's pointing us ahead to one who dealt with the sin problem. But why did he do that? To use the words of Paul. He became sin. This one who knew no sin. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. To use the words of this passage, that's all New Testament language. This one of perfect integrity became sin for all of us who lack this integrity. He became sin so that he could give us his integrity and we can stand before God. Whole, sound, complete people, even despite our sin. Like David in verse 4. There is a way to be brought back into the presence of God, into relationship with God, so that God can look on you and say, you are right with me. You stand next to me forgiven. You stand in grace right here. You've entered back into relationship with me. The first problem that we faced and now as we move forward and try to walk with integrity day by day by day by day, same answer. Still the grace of, grace of Christ at the cross. Still that is what changes us bit by bit by bit. There's a whole lot more theology that could be sketched out. I'm kind of skipping across the top of things here. The point though is, we can't just read the first two points there and say, oh, 
here's a need that I'm supposed to meet, here's a benefit, I should embrace it, and then go out and do it and ignore Christ. Because this will fail. Try to do it yourself. To get into this in the first place, you need the grace of Christ to put you in right standing with God. And then to walk successfully, bit by bit, growing in this, in your concern for the poor and the needy. You need the grace of Christ to change your heart day after day. You should see the expectations. You should be enticed by the blessings. And you should rest in the power made available to you in Christ. The one who was betrayed, pleasing to God, raised up. It's coming again. Now my hope here, I need to talk about the theology there at the end because even though I'm not quite as thorough as I could be with it, I need to talk about that so you understand how these things connect. But my fear is that in saying that, the first part of the sermon will be forgotten. Read verse 1, and it's clear. Blessed is the person who has concern for the poor. The theology explains some of how that happens, how that can continue to happen. Don't get lost in the theology. See, God connects the blessing of life in this passage to our concern for those in need. Let me sum this all up in one statement. Seek the blessing of God by sharing in His concern for those in need. Seek the blessing of God by sharing in His concern for those in need. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.